Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. As a traveler, it's a fact you're going to need to manage your spending in different currencies. You need a service that not only helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, but also does it without the hidden fees or exchange rate markups. This is where WISE comes in. WISE is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. I've been a customer for over a decade. It's been a lifesaver for me as a traveler, a nomad, and now a permanent resident abroad. If you're a traveler who's still using your regular bank, you need to check this out. Join 16 million customers and learn how the WISE account could work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to WISE for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travels brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. This week on the podcast is all about helping you upgrade your bucket list. That's our theme. We've got three destination episodes coming your way, and we're kicking it off with none other than Allison Johnson, the senior editor of National Geographic, after a decade of releasing its best of the world lists, National Geographic has now put all of their top trips from those lists, an ultimate compilation, if you will, into this new book called Best of the World, 1,000 Destinations of a Lifetime, and we're going to break it down for you today. You're going to get some new destination recommendations. You're going to hear about some of those top spots to go have adventures, to experience nature to just get away and enjoy yourself and soak in some culture. Plus, of course, I had the senior editor of National Geographic, so I had to ask her some tips on editing, self-editing as a writer, the craft of writing. I asked her how we can pitch our books to National Geographic. She answers that question and so much more. It's all coming at you Right now, in this episode, kicking it off here, upgrade your bucket list week on the Zero to Travel podcast. Thanks for listening. Welcome, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey, it's Jason here with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. And what is the question you ask yourself the most as a traveler? I can guess one of the top ones. Where am I going next? Where am I going to go next? Isn't that the perennial question we always ask ourselves? And perhaps this week you'll get some answers as we do our part to help you decide on some of those places you want to visit in the next few years. As a traveler, obviously destinations are constantly evolving and it's good to keep your pulse on what's happening around the world where you might want to consider visiting. We have limited resources, a lot of us, for travel, so we got to pick and choose wisely. And this week is all about helping you reassess your bucket list, perhaps add some new destinations to it. I don't know if you like the term bucket list or not. Whatever you want to call it, live list, you get the idea. It's the places you're going to want to go and visit here in the near future. And 
I will, on the back end of this interview with Allison, share with you a handful. I mean, I didn't go crazy. I have the best of the world book here, and (laughs) I didn't want to put together a list of 100 places, although I could have, but I did put together five destinations that I've been to that are in the book that were not covered in the interview that I wanted to just throw out there as personal recommendations and a few that I've added to my bucket list myself. So if you want to hear that, you can stick around after my conversation with Allison for now. I do want to remind you to tune in, subscribe to the show or follow it wherever you're listening because we have more destination-themed episodes coming up this week. And if you want to sign up for our newsletter, which is free, zero-to-travel.com slash newsletter. All right. The housekeeping is done. Let's move into my conversation with Allison Johnson, senior editor of National Geographic. And I will see you on the other side, my friend. Thanks for listening. Senhores passageiros, dentro de momentos, vendas novas. Ao desembarcar, tenha intenção de grau e a distância entre a porta e a plataforma. Por favor, não se esqueça da sua bagagem nem objetos pessoais. Next stop. I'm so fortunate to have Allison Johnson here, the senior editor at National Geographic. And with her team, she's put together this incredible book we're going to talk about today, Best of the World, 1,000 Destinations of a Lifetime. Allison, welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friends. Hi, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> we were just talking. I know you have a bunch of interviews coming up today, and, and we've got the first one of the day. So I, I don't know if that's a blessing or a curse, but we're excited to have you here. <laughs> I mean, when I woke up today, I was thinking, okay, yeah, I've been doing this podcast for over 10 years, but still, I get to get on the call with you, a senior editor for National Geographic, and talk about destinations around the world that are incredible like pinch me right <laughs> this is this is awesome i mean this is this is our job now i know like jobs entail a lot of different things and stresses but still pretty incredible <laughs> yeah i would say i'm one of the lucky people too that every day i'm like oh i get to do this for a living you know yeah. it's you know yeah. jobs are jobs but i i feel like i hit the jackpot working at national geographic <laughs> Well, it's kind of funny because you you had an interesting journey because I know well you went to college in Maryland, right? Um, what yeah. attracted you to journalism? I was always into journalism. I, you know, from a very young age, I loved to read. I loved to write. Um, I actually had a really wonderful high school teacher in my creative writing course um, who sat down with me for a while when I was a junior and talked about the paths I could take with writing because I was so invested in it. And, you know, it was become an English teacher, try your hand at being a, a writer and, and writing a book, or, you know, journalism was always an option or communications. And journalism was just what appealed to me the most. Um, I think, you know, in my younger days, I, I had fantasies of like being the next Woodward and Bernstein. I was always drawn to those stories of like amazing journalism that really changed the course of the world. Um, and then when I got into journalism and I, you know, I, I did a bunch of internships. One of them was, um, University of Maryland has a great program called Capital News Service, which is actually, um, a, a live news wire like the AP. Um, it serves 70, uh, newspapers and, and websites across, uh, Maryland, DC and Virginia. And I actually worked for them for a semester and I was doing, that kind of journalism, that kind of real hard hitting journalism. And I realized the stories I was drawn to were actually the stories about beautiful humanity, about, you know, features about great people, great places. 
and not those hard gotcha journalism moments of uncovering something, which is very necessary in the world. It just wasn't what drew me into journalism. And so I really loved looking at the world through the diversity of people in there and finding those those really exciting stories. And that's really what solidified um, me wanting to stick with journalism, but kind of changed the course of thinking about like newspaper journalism to magazines and now books um, in that regard. In terms of creativity, what do you what do you enjoy about the craft of writing? Do you spend time writing personally, journaling and other projects that are not associated with what you do professionally or? Yeah, I do. I journal a lot. Um, you know, most of my job at National Geographic is more editing than writing. Um, but I, I still write a lot for myself. And what I really love is one, it's a way to hold memories. I think, you know, we all are attached to our phones and we take pictures everywhere we go, but when you write and record, it really solidifies that me- that memory with you. It really, um, you know, you you think about the feelings you had in that moment, what it meant to you. You describe places in, in really finite detail. And I think that's really special and a, a different way of creating memories than just the picture that you took. Um, and I also love the idea, and this is really core to National Geographic too, of storytelling and how do you convey that story so someone else can place themselves there. Even if they'll never go to that place or have that experience, they can be in there with you. And I think that's the creative side of it is figuring out beautiful storytelling that moves people, that um, brings them to a place or makes them feel like they met the person you're talking about. And storytelling is really key to the creativity and what I love to do when I write and what I love about really good writers as well is that they are great storytellers. And you forget where you are when you're immersed in those stories and you're where they want you to be in that writing. Yeah. I mean, there's such an art to both sides of it, right? Editing or or writing as a craft. A lot of it's well, it's curation of ideas, particularly with a book like this, of course. But I mean, you're, you're being exposed to, I know I read on, I think, LinkedIn, you're publishing about 12 to 15 books a year. That sounds insane to me, <laughs> like an insane <laughs> amount of work. But at the same time, you're also being exposed to a couple of things. You're being exposed to so much incredible writing and creativity, but also the the actual knowledge that lies within the books that you're creating. I'm just wondering just through that process of putting books together, what what are some of the big lessons that you've learned personally? Oh, that is a great question. Um, one of my, the biggest things I've learned um, is there's no end to learning. You know, I, I really feel that since I've started at National Geographic, which I'm com- I just hit nine years at National Geographic, I learned something new every day at my job. And I think that's a very rare thing to have at your job. But because I'm immersed in 15 books a day, which I'm constantly reading, I'm constantly researching, I learn something new about the world every single day. And I think that's a beautiful lesson in that there is so much to see, so much to learn about. And so um, through my writers that I work with, you know, I've met a lot of people from around the world. I've learned about different experiences, different cultures, and just how diverse our world is, and not just the biodiversity that you expect from National Geographic. You know, I've learned so much about our planet and the wildlife that lives there, but also the people and cultures around the world. And I think it's really a blessing for me that every day from my desk, I get to read about different cultures around the world and learn something new, whether it's a new tradition that they they practice that I've never heard about before, 
or, you know, a new food or something, but there's, there's so much beauty around the world that I get to experience through our National Geographic writers that are out there traveling and sending these stories back to us. And I think that's really special that um, I can see all of that. Even if I never get a chance to go to some of these places, we have um, a National Geographic photographer, Eugenia, who takes pictures of places that you probably will never get to in your lifetime. There are places that don't appear on Google Maps. Um, so, you know, she grew up in Siberia. She goes out to the ends of Siberia and there's beautiful storytelling in that. And I think that's amazing that there are people out there finding these stories and bringing them to someone like me who is sitting behind my computer. And yes, I do travel, but probably I w- it's too hard for me to get to that part of the world. But she's showing me these beautiful stories and these people um, who've dedicated their lives to things like watching astronomy from a lighthouse in Siberia or, you know, monitoring ocean waves. And I think that's really special to see all of that. And and that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned is there's no end to learning and and the diversity you can see around you. Yeah, that's incredible. I, I always admire those people that you read about that dedicate their life, like you mentioned, to one specific thing, because that's so opposite of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of fascinating to me. And but it takes that those people to like compound generationally to make progress on on those specific sciences. Uh, It's really incredible. I, I agree. I think being exposed to the beauty of the world on a daily basis and just kind of remembering, I'm just speaking for myself here, I feel like that that's really tied to gratitude with me, right? Just kind of like, it's easy when you're busy in your daily life to not sleepwalk through life, but you just, you know, you're kind of just blind to all the incredible things around you. Like we were at the library yesterday with my kids and we were looking at this insect book that had super zoomed in pictures of insects where you saw their faces and like the, you know, the fly tube coming out, you know, and it's just like, wow. You know, it's just that exists. Yeah. That exists. That's like that was in my house. That was a house fly in my house, you know, just uh last week that yeah. we named, by the way. We we named him <laughs> what was his name? Herbert or something. I don't know. We had we had to peacefully get him back outside to the outdoors. But yeah, that part of the job, what a what a gift, right? It is. It's a gift. And I, you know, I always say that travel is the greatest lesson you can teach someone because it teaches you empathy. It teaches you gratitude. It teaches you all of those things in one. And if you can't get to a place being able to do what I do or pick up the books and read what we're creating, it allows you to see that that life in, in those insects and those trees and the the wildlife in the oceans. And I think that's really special. And it is a gift to be able to see all of that and experience that. Do you have a morning or daily practice of some kind or ritual or anything? I wish I did. Right now I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old. So my mornings are get everyone up and ready for the day. <laughs> yes. I, uh, I feel you on that because I have a five and seven-year-old. So I, you know, okay. You're right there with, me. well, not right there. I, I'm, I'm a little past that, but I understand what you're going through. (laughs) It's a crazy time. Well, I mean, for you, how has travel changed since you had kids? You know, I haven't been able to travel as often as I used to. Um, You know, travel has to be very thought out and planned in advance because if we go with the kids, it has to be something, you know, very that I feel like comfortable that they can handle, they can do. 
Um, I am one of those travelers who is go, go, go. I don't like to stop and sit. I want to do everything, see any everything. So when we travel with the kids, I have to remember um, they need breaks. <laughs> they can't go all day. They have nap times. They will fall apart. And so it has made me in that regard a looser traveler. I don't, when we're, we travel as a family, I don't sit there and plan every minute of our itinerary out. It's, you know, here are the things I would love for us to do. If we get to them, great. If we don't, let's try to hit three of them at least and have a little more of that flexibility. Um, But then when I travel for myself or with my husband, um, without the kids, I'm still that itinerary travel that wants to hit everything, but it's much more intentional travel. I would say that, um, you know, I know I, I don't have as long in a place or, you know, this was a really big bucket list for me to get to. And I, I had to make all these arrangements to leave the kids with my parents or my husband's parents. Um, so making the most out of that time as well to to have that alone time, but also see what I want to see while I'm there. And I don't have to worry about nap times and snacks and all the other things that come with traveling as a parent. Just packing it in. Yeah. I mean, I when you said three things, I was impressed. I was like, more like one <laughs> thing, maybe a half a thing if you're lucky. <laughs> yeah, I would say three is a little outside, but I try to be optimistic when I go with the kids. You know, It, it depends on the day. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I mean, you learn so much from that experience, but also, yeah, I think, I think one of the big lessons for me traveling with kids was just letting go of the, uh, things that I knew I couldn't, you know, okay, this, it is what it is, as they say. Yeah. Yes. And not getting upset that something didn't go the way you thought it would, or like, Hey, they didn't like that experience. I thought they would love, you know, and, and just kind of being more free about it. Yeah. Yeah. You can, yeah, you can only control so much. I I think it's, can't plan a lot. (laughs) You used to work as the lifestyle editor at every day with Rachel Ray magazine, which sounds totally different and completely, well, not totally different. I mean, you're still in editing and stuff like that, but I feel like every job you do has value. And even, even though you might not see it on the surface, when you dig in, you start to see how a career path, uh, influences you today. Like there's value in everything you do. And I was just curious from your past experience, you know, writing about like wedding planning or things like that, how does that stuff feed into what you do at National Geographic now? Yeah. So I think, you know, at Rachel Ray, I really, it was where I honed in um, how to edit, how to be a good editor. And even though the topics were very different, one, I was doing a lot of writing at Rachel Ray. Um, I did a lot of the holiday gift guides, the product reviews, um, and then I started going into um, more of the food space and doing some of the recipes and the DIY and like the party planning stories. And that's where I really honed both my editing style and also learned from a bunch of editors what makes a good editor. I was watching how magazine editors work. And um, one of the greatest lessons I learned there was, you know, you would think we work for Rachel Ray magazine, everything should be in Rachel Ray's voice. And there were pieces that were in Rachel Ray's voice. So there was the side of learning to make one voice out of a story. And then there was the side of letting writers' voices shine. And I do think there are editors out in the world who edit 
the way they want, no matter what. And I always try to respect the writer that brings their piece to me and make sure their voice is still present in the story. And so that was a really um, great opportunity of finding that balance. You know, when should it be Rachel Ray's voice? When should it be the magazine's voice? When should it be the individual writer's voice? And figuring that out in the editing process. So that was one of the, the greatest lessons that I learned there was really how to be an editor, how to edit properly. Um, but then that's also where I, I started um, getting my toes in the sand with travel writing and travel editing because they, Rachel Ray is a big traveler and there was always a travel section in the magazine. And one of my colleagues at Rachel Ray, Abby Kozolchik, was our travel editor. And she kind of took me under her wing and she started giving me some assignments in the travel space. She started having me edit some smaller pieces on travel and it really opened my eyes to this world of travel writing and editing that I kind of wasn't aware of before Rachel Ray Magazine. And so that that led to where I am today because without um, that initial entry point into travel writing, I wouldn't be here now. But also being able to edit across the span of travel, DIY, recipes, food, when I started at National Geographic, I didn't immediately become the travel editor. I wasn't immediately given the travel books to work on. I worked on photography books. I worked on science books. I worked on space. I worked on health and wellness. And so I had already done a bunch of those topics within the magazine world um, because the nature of magazines, they all cover so many things within one single issue. So it allowed me that diversity to come in to National Geographic to try my hand at all the different types of books that we publish and then figure out what stuck with me the most and where I felt that I could be the strongest editor. So it was really, it all led, it, it, I was lucky that everything kind of led to each other, but that experience really opened a lot of doors for me and which was fantastic and a great learning experience too. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos, and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway, not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go! To learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best 
off the beaten path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there. And that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself. And that's why we're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Now, back to the show. We're going to get into the book and, and some of the destinations, of course. This is a travel podcast, after all. Well, I've been looking at this every day and loving it. And it's a bit of a compilation. And you know, when you mentioned maintaining the original writer's uh, voice, I was thinking about, I can't remember which section it was or, or what which country I was reading about, but there was a, a writer in there that... Um. Yeah, he had just a unique way of expressing himself, a bit of humor and stuff like that. I was like, oh, that's cool. Like, this is not, there is some, uh, there's the humanity behind each um, sort of feature destination and, and how it's covered. And I think that's one of the things that made the book really cool. Before we talk about some of the, the curated decade of your best of the world list, which is pretty <laughs> incredible in and of itself, I did have one more editing question because you know, we all on some level have to self-edit, right? When it comes to, let's say, you know, writing emails or a lot of creative projects. Like even if you don't think you're doing a lot of writing, if you pay attention, at some point you're writing something, even if it's as simple as an email and you have to make choices and and edits. And and now you're looking at your own work critically. And that's a bit different than looking at somebody else's work, I would imagine. I don't know, maybe not for you because you do this at such a high professional level, maybe you're able to disconnect. But yeah, I was just curious, what what are your thoughts on self-editing as a writer? Yeah, I, it's always tricky to self-edit. I think um, we can all be our own worst critics. And so you mm-hmm. have to come at yourself with grace, the same grace you would give someone else when you're editing them. Um, what I always encourage people to think about is how do you get to the point the fastest? You know, you don't need to be this flowery, like, here's a door, but I'm going to walk all the way around it to get you to that door. So when I think about self-editing, I, I did I make my point clearly is the thing that I want to get out the most. And that's everything from writing to an email, you know, like there's all those memes out there about workplace emails that you like say 10 sentences just to get to like, Hey, you missed the email I sent you. I never got you a reply, you know? So like thinking in that regard of like the most direct route in the, the most evocative way is kind of how I self edit myself. So I, I want to be direct. I don't want to, um, you know, I don't need to paint flowery words just for the sake of having flowery words in there. Every word has a purpose. And that's what I think about when I self-edit. Every word has a purpose is the biggest point that I can drive home. Um, and we all are, like I said, our own worst critics. But I also think you have to have tough skin when you're, you know, whether you're editing yourself or being edited. I've been edited a hundred times over my life. And it hurts sometimes. You think you wrote the best sentence in the world and then someone's like, oh, what is this? And that it's hard to hear. 
But, you know, you have to think about how other people take in information, how other people interpret information and think that way um, and have tough skin about that, that it's not personal. It's just um, someone trying to craft something to be the best version of itself is kind of how I think of editing. Um, And in that regard, you really can't take anything personally, but in the same sense, editing and anything creative is subjective. So if you really believe something was the way it should be, have that conversation, have that dialogue about, you know, whether it's with yourself and you're sitting there debating something or with another person, figure out why that edit was made, why you're debating how something was written um, and think in that sense. And it's not just, I don't like this, but why didn't you like it? Or why do you want to change it? Or why do you love the way that this was written? And and kind of having that either internal dialogue or external dialogue. Is your job part psychologist in that way? Part psychologist, yeah. <laughs> but sincerely. There's a lot of conversations. Yeah. yeah, because you have to you have to be the one to take out that turn of phrase that somebody thought was great or whatever the case is. And now you're there you are, face to face or or internet face to internet face, whatever the case is. <laughs> right, exactly. What have you done to my piece, Allison? Right. And there have been moments that have been really tricky, but always coming at it with respect for the writer and the gratitude that they put their time and effort in and and being willing to have that conversation of, I'm not just changing this for the sake of changing it. Here's why. I'm not just being a jerk. I really want you to put the, your best put foot forward and that it's hard and it can be, it can have some tough conversations, but in the end we always get there, which is good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those, those conversations around creative elements when, if somebody's really wholeheartedly believing in a specific creative choice and you're, I'm just kind of putting my feet in your shoes for a second here and kind of thinking, well, that that's a, that's yeah, that's tricky. Like you said, you got to have the tough conversation, but that's why they pay the big bucks, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have been loving this book. Honestly, I have been looking at it every day and I, I got my kids over my shoulder looking at it and stuff like that, which is another cool part of this. I don't really know where to start. I mean, how long did it take to pull this whole thing together? Did you do it in the span of a year or was it? I Not really because it's a compilation of sorts, but yeah, just give us your own. It actually was... Um... I want to say almost three years in the making because we started this and then the pandemic happened and kind of we put it on pause for a little bit to see how things shook out. Um, So then we really kicked things um, into gear. It took about a year and a half in total. So Best of the World is a franchise that National Geographic has published for since 2012. Um, they have put out every year since 2012 a best of list, which is here are the destinations that are worth your time in the upcoming year to go to. Um, But we couldn't just take those lists and plop them into a book because it's been 10 years. A lot has changed, not just because of the pandemic, but just because of time. So what we did was we took um, from when it was in National Geographic Traveler, we took all the old issues of Best of the World, and then we took all the digital pieces and we combed through every entry from those 10 years we refact checked them. So we had uh, multiple fact checkers go back through to make sure, are these hotels open? Are these um, areas still permitted for tourism? But then not just are they there, do they exist? 
but are they still considered best of the world? So we had our whole network of National Geographic travel writers, which is a wonderful global network, kind of weigh in and say, yeah, this still is worthy of best of the world. Nah, that kind of has fallen off a little bit. Maybe don't include it in the book. Um, Some of the things we couldn't include because they were really timely. They were like, this is the best destination for 2021 because there's going to be a festival there this year that's never going to come back. So it was really finding that balance, but it took a long time just to get to the, what destinations are we going to include because we had to do all that research and revetting to get there. Even though it was curation, it had a lot of um, looking back and looking into these places and kind of rewriting if necessary to make sure that they really still were best of the world destinations to include. Yeah. It's another very subjective thing, of course. I mean, you have certain points you can make, but then you have to uh, essentially, it, it might come down to a feeling in some ways too of, of a place and where it is and where it may be going and so much is tied to it. Okay. Massive project, obviously. What was the most stressful thing about putting this book together and what was the most fun thing? <laughs> I would say the most stressful thing was we were doing it in a time where the travel landscape was constantly shifting after it was post-pandemic. So things were reopening, reshaping. So the most stressful thing was making sure we got everything right, that we were future forward thinking and what will this look like? You know, because we put our books to, um, they go out to the printer about nine months or they, they're they wrapped up about nine months before they actually hit shell, bookshelves. Um, so you have to think future forward. Will this still be in a year from now, in five years from now, when someone has this on their coffee table and opens it up to plan a destination they want to go to? So thinking future forward in a landscape that was shifting constantly was really tricky and stressful for us. Um, I think we were really trying to put our finger on the pulse of like tried and true destinations through the National Geographic lens of is it a cultural experience that's worthwhile? Is it um, a historical experience that's worthwhile? Eco-friendly tourism, sustainability was front of mind. Isn't it an adventure of a lifetime? So that helped us um, kind of put a framework around this to make sure we were truly including the best of the world and ones that would be there for years and years and years to come. Um, The most fun part about it was adding to my own bucket list. You know, it's, and I think that happens with every travel book I work on. You just sit there and you're like, oh my gosh, I need to get myself to this place as soon as possible. And that comes to life with the writing. It also comes to life when I start seeing the layouts and the beautiful photography. And sometimes, I mean, just the cover of the book, when I saw it, I was like, where is that cover? I'm going to get on a plane and go there as soon as humanly possible. And so that's Mm -hmm. always the most fun part for me is not just seeing the places I've been to and being like, yeah, that deserves to be in here, but actually having inspiration of new places that I want to go to where I want to get to because of these books. Okay. On that note, I am going to ask you your top three from the book that you have personal experience with. Again, we know it's subjective. It's just a fun exercise. I mean, you got a ton of destinations in here, but a thousand destinations of a lifetime. So we're talking uh, about a small amount here. But yeah, just curious when some came up that you had been to and they just grabbed you like, oh yeah, this is definitely going in. What were a few of those? Yeah, well, 
One of them, my one of my favorites that actually I hadn't gone to while we were working on the book, but I got there this summer. I actually went at the end of June was Tanzania. I went on my right. first safari this summer and um, Tanzania was in the book. And I have talked to a number of National Geographic travel writers that if you get hit Tanzania on in Serengeti National Park around the Great Migration, there's no safari experience like it. And I was lucky enough to be able to go this summer and I cried happy tears multiple times on this trip. It was just one of the most moving, um, moving places I've ever been. You know, the wildlife was spectacular. We got there kind of at the beginning of the Great Migration. So we didn't see massive herds, but we saw a ton of herds of animals. We saw all uh, of the African big five, saw lions, cheetahs, leopards, rhinos, uh, Cape buffalo, tons of elephants and zebras. Every safari drive we did, um, we did safari for four nights. We did two drives a day. Every day was different. We saw something new. We saw this, the Serengeti itself was beautiful. Uh, we visited Maasai Village, which was spectacular. So it was just one of the most moving trips I've had of my life so far. And that just from seeing wildlife in its natural habitat was so incredible. And then the the people of Tanzania were so warm and welcoming and um, getting to know a lot of the people, the locals there who worked at the lodge that we stayed at. It was really wonderful to see. Um, and I remember sitting there and being like, I'm glad we put that in best of the world because it, it fits here perfectly. And, you know, I don't have a ton of African safaris to compare it to. That was my first one, but it was truly the trip of a lifetime. And so that was definitely a highlight for me that I think is very worthy of being in this book. Did your kids come with you on that trip? They did not come with me on the trip. Though I will say we were with a bunch of other um, people at our lodge and there were families there who had kids as young as two. I do not have the type of kids that would sit happily in a safari Jeep for four hours on end. So we, we left them back. Um, But there were kids that could do it, but my kids are, are not those type of kids. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's the ages at least, you know, right now. Yeah. I totally get that. Where did the extra emotion come from? Like I, I know personally, I feel like there's certain things in the world that you see that are endangered or, you know, lifestyles or whatever animals. I, I feel like I look at my kids now and I'm like, well, they're going to inherit this world and where's this world going? And and that, that really brings an extra level of emotion to my travels. I don't know if any of that was the same with you coming from that. I would say you nailed it on the head with that. It was seeing, you know, seeing these endangered species in their wildlife and they're just them placed in this beautiful Serengeti and thinking, you know, I hope these, these animals survive so my kids can see them. And, you know, I remember when we were getting ready for the trip, you know, someone said to me, well, I did the safari ride at Disney's Animal Kingdom Lodge. And, you know, that's, it's probably going to be very similar to that. And it's like, that's a great way to see animals if you're not going to be able to go on safari. I'm not going to put that down because you are going to see, you know, lions pretty close and all that. But this was so different to see them in their natural habitat. Um, one night we came across a, a lioness who had three three week old uh, cubs with her. And just to see that natural interaction that you you see it on TV, you've seen it in all the dot nature documentaries, but to see it in real life that these cubs 
first of all, were terrified of the Jeep as we approached and just scurried to their mom. And then once the mom kind of calmed them down, they were playing and they're tussling with each other and they're climbing on their mom and all that. And just seeing that natural behavior in this natural environment, they're not at a zoo, they're not in an enclosed environment. They're ju- they're just living their life, and it was incredibly beautiful and powerful. And you know, we always say at National Geographic, the only way people want to are moved to help make change is by experiencing things for themselves. And I, I kind of had kind of that understanding of that sentiment um, that you know, if everyone in the world could go out on a, a safari ride and see these animals in their natural environment, in their natural behaviors, there would probably be more of a, a move to protect them. There would be more of a movement to to help save them because they're beautiful, they're majestic, and they're full of personality. I mean, the elephant herds, every elephant was so different. We had one elephant who like played peekaboo with us for a half an hour. He would just like hide behind a tree and then pop out and like up his ears. And just like seeing that personality, it's like we were laughing and he was playing with us. And it's just incredible to see kind of their personalities in this wildlife come come out. And I think that it, that moved me incredibly and to think um, that anyone would do these animals harm um, was really was really hard to process too. Yeah. What an unforgettable moment. By the way, no offense to your friend, but that's probably like if there was a top 10 things not to say to the senior editor of National (laughs) Geographic, it's that you can have the same experience at a theme park. (laughs) We can put that on a T-shirt. We can get the, they can start rolling in here. You know, I'm sure sure you've heard a few other ones. So maybe we can put those down later. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Love it. Yeah, I think uh, for me... I have never been on safari as well. And now hearing you describe it is just making it even a, a stronger urge. And I, I really want to do that with my kids and, and have them experience that and experience that myself. So that's, that's magic. Yeah. What, what were uh, a couple of the other destinations? Um, one that I insisted on making the book is Costa Rica. And I actually think it's, um, if you're from the United States and you've never traveled internationally, it's probably one of the best starter international trips that you can take for sure. It's easy to get to. Um, It's, you know, I think people feel very um, welcome when they go to Costa Rica. There's not as big of a language barrier. Costa Rica was one of my favorite trips I've ever taken just because of the breadth of experiences you can have there. So when I went, we stayed near Arenal Volcano, which was just incredible in itself to see. We ziplined through the jungle canopies, including, um, you know, over this river gorge that I actually got to zipline upside down across, which was just adrenaline rushing to the extreme. <laughs> um, we went ATV riding, we went snorkeling and scuba diving, and then there's just um, a beautiful way of life in Costa Rica. Their motto is Pura Vida. So they're all about living life to the fullest. The food is amazing. And so that was a destination that I was like, if this hasn't been featured in Best of the World, we're adding it because it just has to be in there. Everyone should have a chance to get to Costa Rica and experience the adventure, the biodiversity, the food, the people of Costa Rica. It's just a, one of my favorite trips of all time that I've ever taken. Love it. You mentioned Pura Vida, that that philosophy, that cultural kind of—it's almost like um, 
pure life, I guess it was, is a direct translation, something like that. Just kind of enjoy life in a way. Yeah, I, I'm just using that as a specific example because you live in the DC area, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I'm from outside of Philadelphia originally. I live in Norway now, but I know that the East Coast is generally kind of like that fast paced sort of. And when I get back, I feel like there's anxiety floating through the air in, in some ways. In that, <laughs> yes. in that, yeah, I'm just curious for you as a traveler, when you come back from a trip like that, where you've spent a bit of a time like embracing some kind of cultural idea, like Pura Vida, I'm using that as a specific example. And then you come back home. How much of that do you want to carry with you in kind of to your daily life? How much are you able to? I always think that's a trick that... If you can pull it off as a traveler, if you can kind of cherry pick the, you know, these little cultural philosophies and things that that can just improve, make help you live your best life, essentially, it's always magic. But it's hard to do when you get back into your home environment. Yeah, it's hard when you're in your real life to be like, hey, I'm going to take things <laughs> yeah. easy, breathe, like, slow. You say my deadline's that time. No, Pura Vida. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. I got this. Yeah, it's all good. I'm going to go surfing. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Yeah, it, it's very tricky. I, um, I'm outside of D.C. right now. I actually lived in New York for a number of years. And I remember even, you know, D.C. is very fast paced, too. But even the difference between D.C. and New York. I remember one time taking the train back because I grew up in DC. So I'd come home to visit my family and take the train back up to New York. And like, I could feel my blood start pumping differently. Like the second we hit New York, like I, I walked faster. I felt that energy level. Like it's like full body consumption. And so I do try when we travel um, and have experiences like in Costa Rica, obviously I can't slow down everything. I can't, you know, make deadlines disappear, have a different work pace. Um, but I do try to like take what I've learned and adopt it in ways I can. Like, so Pura Vida to me, when I think about that, I, 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 you know, it's pure life, but I also think live life to the fullest. So like trying not to miss moments, being present when I can, um, with my kids, with my family, making the most out of weekends when we're not tied to busy work and school schedules, um, so I try to take those little lessons and intersperse them where I can, but within the, the reality of our real day-to-day -day life that we do have work pressures and school pressures on us. And unfortunately we can't all, um, just slow down and stop everything, but I do try to like sometimes take reminders and obviously like right when I get back from a trip, I'm much better at doing that. And then when it's been like a few months, I've gotten back into my real life pace. But I do, um, when I do feel overwhelmed or stressed with the pace of life, sometimes I do think of, you know, oh, if I lived in such and such a place, I wouldn't be like this. And then I, I try to say, well, you know, I could adopt X, Y, and Z into my life instead of just saying, oh, I have to uproot my life to go change the pace that I'm living at. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think there's a lot of value in just being exposed to those ideas or cultural philosophies or whatever you want to call them. And, and even living them, even if even if it's for a short period of time, right? I feel like the, some of it, it gets in there, right? I say that with my kid when I'm teaching my kids lesson, you don't think they're going to remember this trip when they're three or whatever, but it, it all goes in there. <laughs> it does. It does. And it sticks with you and it comes out in ways you don't expect. But I think you're absorbing it. And even if you just got that week of respite and experience a different way of life, it it sticks with you somehow. And it's nice to experience it and say, you know, this could be what I 
maybe like in some people I know go places. We, I think we actually have it in best of the world. There's an essay on Costa Rica where, um, a woman went to Costa Rica and then never wanted to leave because that way of life for her family just worked better, you know? And so sometimes it sticks with you in, in small ways and sometimes big ways that you just change your life entirely because of one experience. And I think that's the beauty of travel is what you take away from it could be life-changing. Yeah. What were some of the other destinations in here that you wanted to highlight? I, I love the breakdown. Uh, we, we talked about the list last year. And then, of course, this is much bigger than last year's list. But the nature, culture, cities, adventure, and family, is that covers it all <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the one that... I loved personally that kept popping up. We actually feature it four times in the book, but um, rightfully so in my opinion. And it's, it's great for uh, U.S. travelers is the state of Utah. Um, oh, yeah. So it's actually it's so underrated. I, it's so underrated. It's like it has everything, you know, especially for families. And so, um, you know, we featured it four times once um, for adventure travel once um, for Montage Deer Lodge as one of the ho- best of the world hotels. Um, we have a whole road trip through Southern Utah where you go through a bunch of state and national parks and then Zion National Park is in there. I've done all these experiences and I still feel like there's so much of Utah to see. Um, there's just a, such a diversity of what you can do there. And like I said, I'm a go, go, go traveler. I grew up, we were adrenaline junkies in my family. My kids are the same way now. Um, so we go to Utah to ski, but we also like my favorite time of year out there is, um, that cusp between summer fall. Um, and we go mountain biking, we go fly fishing, we do, um, we go to the national parks, we do waterfall hikes and there's so much to see and do there. And I think it's this underrated gem that people maybe think about for skiing, but nothing beyond that. And there's so much to see and do there. It's a big state. Um, and there's so much to do nearby to it. Um, when I was uh, younger, we actually did a road trip from uh, Nevada through Utah up to Salt Lake City, and we hit a bunch of national parks. We did a lot on the way there. We went horseback riding in Bryce Canyon. And so I truly think for U.S. travelers looking for a domestic best of the world destination, like find a spot in Utah and head there because you will find something to do. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's it's got... So it's so diverse and there's so, so you can have it really a bit of everything. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press, but I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago and immediately I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour-over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years. I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks So they also make an exceptional gift, thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. 
Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever Zero to Travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me, Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Now, back to the show. Okay, I know this isn't a magic wand. It's just a pen. But let's say I, I can like point it at you. And we got some like dust swirling in the air. And all of a sudden, your book's glowing. You got your best of the world copy here. And you can open it up to any page. And you can pick, you can put your finger on it. And it will take you there. What, what, where are you going? What is the number one experience or destination in this book that you have not visited, but you would most like to do? And it's not, it's not a fair question. I realize, but you know, it's It's you in the moment right now, you know, whatever early morning, it's a Monday, (laughs) we're recording this and you're just like, you know what? I can go spend the day here today. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I would say right now that the top, top of my bucket list is the Azores in Portugal. It has been since working on this book, I keep saying to my husband, so when are we going to go to Portugal? So when are we going to go to Portugal? It is just, um, it's been described a few times to me as like Hawaii, but Portugal, but I think it's so much more than that. (laughs) Um, From what I've read about it, it's, you know, there's nine different islands. They're all very diverse from each other. Um, the entry in Best of the World is all about how it's example of sustainability actually working, that the islands all collectively put sustainability first. So their coral reefs are healthy. Um, their forest lands are healthy. And I want to go to a place that truly can tout that, that can say we've protected this land, we've made it biodiverse and kept it biodiverse and, and see that nature for myself. I've also heard the culture and the food is amazing. I want to go scuba diving there. The lodges look beautiful. It's just, it looks like paradise to me every time I see pictures of it. So that is definitely at the top of my list. Love it. You're, you're, you're only increasing my own personal list. So thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> The spots that didn't make it in the book, but almost did. I'm just curious if you, if a couple come to mind, I know they're not in the book, but I'm just wondering if there were a couple on the bubble that were like, oh, darn, if we had a thousand and one, this would have been there. Yeah. You know, I would say we covered a lot. Um, One that um, we kept going back and forth for sure um, was kind of a Thailand road trip that we have in there. And that's something I've done myself. We did Bangkok, Chiang Mai, um, and then the beaches area. And so we do have Thailand in there for the Yingping Lantern Festival, which I do think is something everyone should get a chance to see. It's beautiful. But it it wasn't that it's not best of the world. It, it was a space issue more. But also, um, we wanted to have a diversity of hidden gems mixed with the expected. And I think, you know, for a while, Thailand and Chiang Mai and Bangkok in particular were so well known, it became trendy for a while to go there that um, 
it, it kind of got pushed for more hidden gems throughout the book, I would say. Um, but it's one that I definitely to- had a, a hard time letting go of because um, I did have such an amazing experience in Bangkok and, and in Chiang Mai in particular that um, it is a part of the world I want everyone to see and experience. But it just was, um, it felt like something, you know, we have a lot of well-known destinations in here too, but it felt that there were some more surprises that we could put into the mix. And so that's kind of why it got got pushed a little to the side. Since you were in Chiang Mai, I'm sort of a separate question from from the content of the book, but how do you feel about, you know, you were there, that it's sort of a digital nomad hotspot, let's say, a lot of remote work, people congregating, becoming uh, like a bit of a bubble, it could be in that way, if, you, if you're putting yourself in that bubble, if you want to call it that, depending on your attitude and how much you're you're involved in the local community when you're there or not. No judgment here, I'm just, you know an observation. Uh, I'm just curious what you think, you know, the ability, the remote work movement and the digital nomad movement, movement, those associated movements where people can now spend extended period of periods of time in other countries. How do you think that's impacting the local communities? Good, the good, bad, and ugly. Have you guys discussed some of those types of topics in your office? And we do talk about it. Um, you know, the good is, it's, you know, allowing people to really truly immerse themselves in a local culture. Obviously, the bad is how much is that digital nomad experience shifting the local culture? How much is it westernizing places that might not have been westernized so soon? How much, um, how much impact are the remote workers having on the place they're going versus what I think should be the opposite, that the place is having an impact on them. Um, And so I think, you know, I'm all for people going abroad and living somewhere new, um, but I always hope that they do it through the lens of because they value and appreciate the place they're going to in that local culture rather than wanting to change that. And, you know, when we were in Chiang Mai, we did see a lot of expat communities, but it didn't feel like it had totally changed the the culture of Chiang Mai itself. There were pockets that felt more Americanized, I would say, or European, um, but there was still a lot of authentic culture there. So I think it's that balance, you know, of like you want people to live in the place they feel the most comfortable or where they want to be exposed to, but you also don't want to change what makes that place so special and making everything homogenous and European or American um, by by having these larger expat communities. And I think, um, and this is the most obvious sense of it, and it's not, it's been going on for decades. It's not because of remote work, but like you can see it in places. Um, we published The Blue Zones by Dan Buettner, which is all about the places in the world where people live longest. Um, the westernization of places. So Okinawa, Japan, for instance, was a blue zone for years and people lived in, well into their hundreds. Um, and now what Dan Buettner has discovered is, hey, because um, of military bases, McDonald's and all these other, you know, KFC, all these fast food chains showed up in Okinawa. And now their population, the younger generation, isn't going to live as long as the centenarians that um, he he had met in Okinawa that he found, you know, founded the Blue Zones on. And so I think you have to keep that in mind when you go to places and you want to live there is um, 
what are you bringing in and how are you respecting that culture and, and keep safeguarding that culture? And not to say that all Westernization is bad. There are good parts of it too. Access to the internet, access to, to other things, um, you know, pumping the economy, all of that is great. But I do think um, there's that careful balance that we need to be aware of, of not just changing a culture outright because of an influx of, of expats. Yeah. Appreciate your thoughts on that. There's, there's no, I mean, it's a complicated issue, right? You might talk to one local saying, well, this is great. This is, I have more income from my family. Another person might be like, they're driving up the prices. This is ruining my life. You know, it's, it's complicated. So it's just kind of curious about your thoughts there. One of the things that was advanced over when we were talking about chatting was uh, this idea of you providing some tips for less experienced travelers uh, on how to plan it for a trip of a lifetime, which I'm just going to use the caveat here because this is a zero travel podcast. We want people to fill their lives with as much travel as possible. I remember going on a trip thinking, this is like a one-time thing. I'm never going to get to travel across the US like this again. And then I did it for the next 10 years, you know? So I think right. it's a good, like if you haven't done, let's call it a quote unquote trip of the lifetime, whatever you want to say that is for you. You know, it can definitely be the gateway to lots of trips for you feel like you live many lifetimes in a way. Yeah. How would you define like a trip of a lifetime? I guess it would be maybe something that's perhaps a bigger investment, something you've always wanted to do that you've been putting off that you're ready to do now, something like that. Would that be the mindset? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great way to define it of, you know, it's that place you've always wanted to get to. Um, You know, I think for, for newbie travelers, um, start with something that's not your trip of a lifetime to get your travel legs under you. You know, if you've never, there are people who have never been on a plane before. Don't make that your trip of a lifetime, your first plane ride necessarily, because Mm -hmm. you might have anxieties and things um, about riding in a plane that you want to kind of like nip in the bud before you go. And like, don't let that ruin your experience. If you have nerves about flying or going on a boat or something like that, but to plan the trip of a lifetime, you know, Start saving um, as soon as you can. And it could just be like cut out your daily Starbucks to kind of get that um, budget going for your trip of lifetime and do your research. Um, You know what I like to say about best of the world and books we do like it. It's aspirational and inspirational. This isn't necessarily your guidebook to everything and anything to do in these destinations. These are bucket list destinations you should try to get to. These are trips of a lifetime. And so it's a starting point. It's an entry point. You say, hey, this is the place I want to go. And then do your research. Talk to travelers who have been there or people who live there. Um, There's a lot of networks online. Um, Facebook, for instance, has travel groups that you can literally just search in Facebook and say like, Costa Rica travel group, and you can ask people for their advice, their opinions on what to do, where to go. Guidebooks, of course, are always great, but figure out what your like three goals of this trip of a lifetime are. Is it you want to see all the sites in a place? Because that takes a lot of legwork. If you're like, if you're going to Rome and you want to see all of the ruins and the Vatican and all that, like what does your day look like to get you to all of those sites every day? How much time do you need? Or is your goal to just eat the best food? And if that's the case, are you eating the best food because you're going to Michelin star restaurants? Or are you eating the best food because you're going to awesome street vendors um, at a night market in Thailand? So figuring out what that looks like, or is your ultimate goal 
a beautiful family experience and you just want to go to a place and get lost in it. So figuring out what your goal for that trip of a lifetime is because it is more than just choosing a destination. The destination is your starting point, but there's so much to do wherever you go and you're not going to get it all in in a week. You know, if that's all you have is a week, I promise you, you're not going to see everything you want to see or everything that this place has to offer. So what are the key things you want to see and gear your trip around those key things and figure it out um, with that frame in mind. And then I do like to say, like, I know it's hard to think about, especially it's hard budget-wise and everything. You can go back. If it's a trip of a lifetime and you loved it and you're like, hey, but I didn't get to do X, then come home and start planning to get back there in a year, two years, three years, whatever it takes, because these places aren't going anywhere. So you don't have to feel that that insane pressure of seeing and doing everything while you're there. And I have that pressure. Every time I go somewhere, I'm like, I might never get back here. I have to do everything that I possibly can. And then I like don't sleep the entire time because I'm cramming it all in. But that can take away from your enjoyment because you're just stressed and running. You have two seconds in one place and two seconds in another. So try to curate the trip for maximum enjoyment on top of just seeing everything that you want to see there. There's that word curate again, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Love Theme it. of the day. <laughs> yes. Is there a destination in here that you do think on, on the flip side of that, not that we're not trying to create travel anxiety here, but you know, one of those destinations where you're like, ah, oh, you know, this one, it would be good to get there sooner than later because it is getting really popular and it's just on the cusp of exploding, but you know, we can still have those more authentic experiences, less crowds, anything come to mind? Um, yeah. And, you know, I would say Croatia is one of those uh, destinations that's a beautiful place to see, but um, it it's really blowing up. Game of Thrones did not help ease that travel burden. <laughs> um, so I think that um, that's the first place that comes to mind is, it is one of those places that I fear will become like a Venice or a Rome or a Fran or Paris of that, um, you know, Dubrovnik. I'm trying to think of Iceland as another destination that, you know, people have been, you know, pushed to go there and see, and it's becoming very over touristed right now. Um, and so I wouldn't say don't go there. I would just say, you know, they're, they're exploding right now. There's a lot of tourism happening in these areas. But one of my favorite tips to tell people is go in the shoulder seasons and you're going to avoid that over tourism. Um, and it might not be the pictures you saw of the place because it's not the season that everyone goes and takes those pictures. Um, but you're going to have a, a less crowded experience, which often makes for less travel anxiety when you're not with a horde of tourism tourists in this area traveling around. One of my favorite um, pictures is actually a place that's on my bucket list is Katmai in Alaska, which is where the grizzly bears are. Um, and so uh, National Park Service actually just finished up their Fat Bear Week, which is a competition where um, people vote on their favorite fat grizzly bear in Katmai National Park after they've feasted on salmon um, to prepare for hibernation. But it's on my bucket list to get to. But I time and time again think of this National Geographic photograph by Joel Sartori, I think it is. He was in Katmai taking pictures of the grizzly bear hunting for salmon in the river, which we've all seen that beautiful picture of, you know, the bear with the salmon like jumping in his mouth. Um, Joel Sartori turned the camera around from the bears 
to the decks, the observation decks, and took a picture of all of the tourists there taking pictures of the grizzly bears. And it was just, it's just a reminder of the other side of these beautiful places that there are people and crowds and tourists there. And you have to be mindful of that when you go, that that's just part of the experience is these crowds. Um, and you, you can either go with the flow and be there among the crowds and deal with that. Or like I said, choose a different time of the year to go. That's less popular and you're going to have less crowded places. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. Uh, what is the uh, biggest perk working for National Geographic? I would say that I get to travel from my desk every day. I get to see different places through the lens of our writers and photographers. Um, I get to meet people regularly who are, I think, are changing the world, making it a better place, um, and are really passionate about what they do. Um, I'm a little, very, very little cog in that wheel. So I'm just grateful to be part of it and to be um, working with these people that are truly out there doing the hard work of protecting our oceans, our wildlife, our planet, um, and allowing us a window into places around the world that we may or may not get to in our lifetime. And I, I feel very blessed to, to be part of that organization and to be working with those amazing people that are out there in the field. Amazing. Now let's say hypothetically there was a travel podcaster who wanted to pitch a book idea to you. How would they go about doing that? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so my email is always open for pitches. And what I always say to people when they're pitching, um, start by sending me just a paragraph of what that is. So I can say right direction, wrong direction, let's talk. Um, and then from there, if it's a, an idea we want to consider, we create what's called a book proposal, which is a more in-depth overview of what this book would be, how it's organized, what it covers. Um, and so anyone can email me pitches. Um, and we we take pitches at all times. We're not like open and closed at certain times. But I think always start with, here's a short version. Here's my elevator pitch. And then we build from there after a few discussions. <laughs> Thanks for that. Okay. Because, you know, if my audience, I think would kill me, there'd be a subset of people listening right now that'd be like, you didn't ask Allison how we can pitch her a book idea. Okay. Um, I mean, I have a few ideas maybe, but you know, I'll get my elevator pitch together. Um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> do you have any exciting uh, book projects planned for the coming year or? Trips. We or, have a lot yeah. in the works. Um, we in this coming February, we have a book uh, with the Bucketless family, who are a family of they call themselves travel journalists. They're online um, on Instagram. They post weekly YouTube videos of their travels around the world. So Jessica G of the Bucketless family actually wrote um, her tips and tricks. It's great for families um, how to travel as a family with kids from surviving jet lag to tantrums in an airport um, and then 50 great itineraries to do with families. So I think for anyone um, interested in family travel, that's a great one. And then um, we have some really um, fun kind of guidebooks more along the best of the world. We have a great book coming out in April called Here Not There, which is all about just what we were talking about, places that um, get over tourist 
overcrowded, kind of overpriced because they've been visited so often. This is a whole book of if you're if you've been to this place or you're thinking about going to this place, but you're worried about that over tourism, here's an alternative where you're gonna get a very similar vibe and flavor. So it's a hundred alternate destinations to kind of more typical destinations around the world, which is a really fun, different play on travel. That was really fun to work on. Sweet. Where's your next trip? Even if it's local, what do you you got going on? I'm actually going back to Utah (laughs) to go skiing this winter. (laughs) Where are you going to go? We are going to go um, ski out in the Park City area, Alta, Snowbird, Canyons, oh, all of that. Epic. So we're looking forward to it. Yeah. <laughs> always, you can always get a good powder day out there, I feel. Yes, always. <laughs> always. So we're excited. My five-year-old will be skiing. It's his second winter on skis. So we're excited nice. to, to see nice. if he gets the hang of it. <laughs> yes. I'm in that boat with my daughter. This will be her, yeah, second year kind of doing the downhill thing. So it should be fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Favorite adjective? Oh, eccentric. Nice. (laughs) Do you have a favorite quote uh, recently that you've been leaning on? Um, I'm not going to quote it correctly, but there is a quote by Mr. Rogers about looking to the people, the helpers that um, I lean on a lot. And it's all about looking to the people in hard times that are helping, that are doing the good work to remind you of all the good in the world. And that is one of my favorite quotes, but I don't have it memorized. <laughs> yeah, that's great. The, the uh, as you mentioned, the intention behind this book, aspirational, inspirational, you said it best when you said you're one of your biggest perks as the senior editor of National Geographic is getting to travel from your desk. And if you get the best of the world, 1000 destinations of the lifetime, then you can have the same perk, yes, <laughs> right? Armchair travel not, at not, its yeah, finest. Right, <laughs> not even behind your desk. You can have it on your couch. That's what I've been doing, <laughs> sitting on my couch reading this. And uh, no, I just, uh, yeah, no, I appreciate, thank you for sending me the book. And I just wanted to say thanks for your time. And also thanks for the inspiration. You know, as, even as a traveler, I'm not traveling as much now with kids, but I mean, I think whether you're traveling a lot or maybe you're in a stage in life where you're not traveling as much, it is going back to what we talked about at the top, like just reading about the world and and learning about new destinations and some of the nuances of them. I feel like it's, yeah, it just makes me grateful for all there is to do in the world and excited for for more explorations whenever they come. And and the book has been fuel for inspiration. Absolutely. So thank you. Thanks for taking all the time to put it together. I mean, what a team here. I, I see there's a lot of people involved in this too. So there are, yes. <laughs> so well, I hope it inspires travel. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to kind of leave people with or? You know, I just hope this book is inspiration, whether it's uh, just paging through for the beautiful photography and storytelling or inspires your next trip. And um, it really is a beautiful collection that celebrates our entire world. And I, I hope people enjoy it and they can buy it wherever books are sold. Thank you. Total honor to have you here. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you. There have it. I want to thank Allison Johnson for taking her time to be on the show. I know she's very busy over there at National Geographic. And yes, in a moment, I am going to share a handful of destinations that I've added to my bucket list uh, since getting this book. And also 
Uh, a few that I have been to that are in the book that I would strongly recommend if you're looking for more destination fodder. It's coming up in a minute. We're also going to leave you with a quote that perhaps sums up this week here at the Zero to Travel podcast, Upgrade Your Bucket List Week, which is a fun theme. I would say. And I hope you're going to enjoy it. We've got more episodes coming, two more this week. As I mentioned in an earlier episode, we are publishing three episodes a week through the remainder of the year. So if you're not subscribed or you're not following the podcast wherever you listen, go ahead and do that so you don't miss these, the next episode. Yeah, I mean, I won't spoil it, but just keep an eye out on the feed. <laughs> you're going to enjoy these these next couple. Okay. Before I let you go, let me share with you this quick list of 10 destinations. I've got five that I've added to my own bucket list, and then I have five that I've been to that I thought I would just highlight from the book. Okay, number one, there was a section called Foodie Cities, and they listed Rome. It's obvious, I know, it's popular, but you know what? It's an incredible experience to go and eat Italian food in Rome. If you've done it, you know. So that's on the list. I would recommend it. Dublin was another one. They called it the world's cheeriest city, quote unquote, here in the Best of the World book. And it is a very infectious place. The Irish are just infectious. Their love of music and dance and crack, aka the, the slang for just conversations and talking. And it seems like you can make a friend anywhere. Whether you're in Dublin alone or with a group, can't go wrong. Okay. Third one, they had a section about climbing the Rockies in Colorado. I used to live in Colorado, and I will just throw a quick recommendation. I wanted to climb a 14er, one of the 14,000-foot peaks back in the day, and the easiest one to climb, or I should say one of the easiest, is Quandry Peak. It's close to Denver and Breckenridge, so you can get there pretty easily, and it's a nice gentle walk up to the summit. So it was a cool thing to do, you know, to say, hey, I want to climb a 14er, find one that wasn't so extreme and get that done. But any climb you do in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, your soul is just going to be filled with I don't know, fresh air and nature and, and beauty. And there's something about hiking out in Colorado. I'll just forever hold close to my heart, still miss it to this day. So get out there and climb some of the Rockies if you can. Okay. The fourth one, even though we did talk about it in the interview, but I'm giving it another stamp of approval, Utah, the ultimate adventure playground. There's so much to see and do in Utah. Shout out to Utah. If you haven't been, just go and drive around Utah and have adventures. I've been to Moab multiple times. I've been mountain biking, hiking Utah, skiing. It is a wonderful place to explore. There's, uh, there are cities to see, culture in that way. It's, uh, it's a great place to visit. Okay. And lastly, they had a section called Meet the Maya in Guatemala with a picture of Tikal, one of the ancient ruins there where you go and you feel like Indiana Jones <laughs> visiting an ancient ruin. Just a beautiful place to go and visit and see lovely country. So there's five. Just wanted to highlight those because, again... Let's upgrade your bucket list week. So might as well throw a few more at you. And not that you care, but I'll share five that got me excited in the book. First of all, there was this Paris to Sea path, bike path, 270 miles, La Sine O Velo. That sounds pretty cool. That was one I added. Georgia, been on the bucket list for a while, but 
you know, I'm upgrading it. So I'm moving it up back on New Zealand. They call it the capital of adventure here in this book and another place I really wanted to go to visit. South Korea, which also comes up later this week, as you'll hear in a future episode, mentioned in the book a couple different times at least. And uh, it seems like a very compelling place to visit with the food. You can see all of the wonderful art and culture, music coming out of South Korea. Just a place I'd really love to go. So I'm bumping it up on the uh, on the old bucket list. And lastly, they had me at this headline, an epic walk to remember. In England, they said, quote, a colossal undertaking is nearing fruition. When unveiled in its entirety, the England Coast Path will be the world's largest seafront walking trail stretching nearly 2,800 miles. Wow. Okay. So yeah, if you think about that, you have one of the smaller nations in the world creating the longest seafront walking trail. And it sounds like a very interesting walk. I mean, who doesn't love walking on a coastal path along the ocean and then stretch that out for 2,800 miles? I'm sure you're passing through some quaint villages and oh, it just sounds pretty epic. So anyway, uh, just a little taste, a little bit more fodder for your for your own list as we close this out with a quote from let's see oh i misplaced it hold on here it is tilopa where are these people that have uh, just one one word for their name I, I know madonna prince banksy bjork pink nas okay but in regular life do people have one name too is that something you could do anyway if, if, if it is something you can do and, and i was going to do it i have no idea what name i would pick that's a lot of pressure anyway i'll come back to you on that <laughs> for now let me leave you with this quote from tilopa who said have a mind that is open to everything and attached to nothing end quote now, this whole like non-attachment thing i don't know it's, it's, it can be difficult I have a lot of things i am attached to in this world but you know, I wanted to relate this back to destinations as we close it out. Being open to new destinations and not attached to any one particular one is, is a fun way to go through at least this destinations week, I think, and a fun way to approach your travels and it can actually be a more affordable way if you're really open and you can stretch your budget and you find that some places are more affordable than others at this moment in time, then go for those. So have a mind that is open to everything and attached to nothing. Applied to destinations, something to think about. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs> Peace and love to you and yours. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality. <laughs>